Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you, uh, live from Portland, where yesterday we got notice that we have now officially one case here in Portland. There's 300 people who they're looking at, and I think there's, what, around a dozen that have been confirmed in the state. But this was one right in Portland that hadn't gone anywhere, hadn't done anything, had just been hanging out in town, and boom, he's got coronavirus, or she, we don't know. So, you know, it's spreading. We're all Seattle and New Rochelle. And it doesn't mean that we need to be freaking out and frightened. It, it means that, you know, we need to do something. We need to be th- thinking about this, talking about this, moving forward in a reasonable fashion. But just consider where we're at and why we're here. Two years ago, it's just a- absolutely mind-boggling. The day after the 100-year anniversary of the 1919 flu, right? <laughs> two years ago, almost two years ago, the Trump administration shut down the New York Times, by the way, they're, I guess it's really a, a podcast. It's called The Daily. It tells this story brilliantly today. It's really worth checking out. But anyhow, they shut down the two high-level offices in the White House that were responsible for dealing with the pandemic, one in the Department of Homeland Security, the other in the, in the National Security Director's Office or the Office of National Security and uh, the NSC. And they no longer exist. The two offices within the White House that were designed to deal with pandemics that had scientists within them that 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 were independent of politics, they no literally no longer exist. John Bolton fired them all and shut them down. And because of Trump's incompetence and hubris, his administration was unwilling to make the World Health Organization test kit, which was available all over the world in January. He was unwilling to make that available anywhere in the United States. It's still not available anywhere in the United States. No, instead, we've got, to, we've got to develop our own. We're America, right? We're not the World Health Organization. That's one of those UN things. So thus, large parts of the United States are probably in a similar situation to Seattle and New Rochelle, but just don't know it because they haven't had enough people show up at the hospital yet, you know, deathly ill. Once again, and it bears emphasizing the good news is the vast majority of people who get this disease don't even know they have it. They think they have a bad cold or a terrible flu that lasts for, you know, that seems to hang on for a couple of weeks. The bad news is they're spreading the virus and that, you know, thinking that they just have a cold or the flu because there's no test. If you show up at your doctor's office or at a hospital ER right now saying, you know, I think I may have the coronavirus. If you're not ready to be checked into the uh, into an isolation ward if you're not that sick in all probability you're going to be turned away and and even if you are that sick in many places you're going to be turned away this morning on cnn poppy harlow and jim shuto uh interviewed a guy from his hospital bed in i believe it was rome georgia it was rural georgia and he was a former law enforcement officer and he had the coronavirus and he had nearly died from it. He came into the hospital on Monday of last week and said, I am really sick. I, and they said, yep, you've got pneumonia. And uh, they did a test for the flu and they said, but you don't have the flu, so we're going to send you home. 
And so he went home, and on, then on Friday, he called him up, and he said, uh, I feel like I'm dying. And they said, well, come on in. And so he went in, and they finally did a coronavirus test on him, and, and sure enough, he's positive. So they've got him in this isolation room, and over the weekend, he got real, real sick. And, but today, he was well enough. He was clearly still very sick, but he was well enough to talk to Poppy and Jim, right, on CNN, live on CNN. Louise and I are sitting there watching this, and Poppy is talking to him, and she says, you know, tell us about the rest of your family. And he's like, well, my wife is a flight attendant, but she didn't get sick. And we're like, what? And so Poppy says, well, has she been tested? No, she hasn't been tested. I mean, the guy's in isolation in a hospital. Now, his wife isn't flying right now because her husband has been tested positive with the coronavirus, but she had been flying before, before Friday. She had presumably been flying on Monday when he first got really sick. Up and down the East Coast is how he described it. It was amazing. I mean, large parts of the U.S. are probably in a situation similar to Seattle and New Rochelle just two weeks ahead. You know, or three weeks ahead. And we don't know. We don't know where they are. We don't know how they're happening because the test kits are not available. You can go on Amazon and get a test kit for AIDS, for HIV. You can go on Amazon and get a test kit for, for gonorrhea. You can go on Amazon and get a test kit for syphilis. But you can't get, you can even get a test kit for the flu. They're expensive. They're like 90 bucks. But, you know, if you don't want to go to the doctor or go to your uh, hospital or something, you can buy a test kit, you know, on Amazon or presumably in your local drugstore for the flu which is a virus. But if you want a test kit for Corona, sorry, buddy. Uh, Donald Trump does not want that happening. We need a national mobilization right now to prepare our hospitals and our doctor's offices for what's coming. We need easy and accessible testing in every community in America today. And because the Trump administration is unwilling to make this happen and instead is giving us happy talk, and now you've got the Republican governor of Florida saying, oh, everything's just fine, don't worry. We don't have any cases down here. We all need to carefully recalibrate our lives and avoid unnecessary exposure to crowds and public events. And finally, and I think most importantly, Mike Pence, who is supposed to be in charge of this, if he is actually listening to the health professionals around him, Mike Pence needs to convene a meeting of the cabinet and say, we are going to start the process of invoking the 25th Amendment to get Donald Trump out of the White House and make me president so that we can do something about this to protect our nation. I never thought I'd, I'd say, you know, let's make Mike Pence president, but oh my God. Meanwhile, in the Senate, the Republicans, Mitch McConnell, has laid out his plan for the coronavirus. It's amazing. He told reporters, this is uh, yesterday, he told reporters that uh, he would do exactly nothing I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to let Nancy Pelosi do it. This, this was his solution a year and a half ago, two years ago, when Donald Trump shut the government down. They said, what are you going to do, Senators, Senator McConnell? He's like, well, we'll see what comes out of the House. That's what he said yesterday. He said he's going to uh, allow Speaker Pelosi and Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, to negotiate this thing together. Isn't he sweet? Meanwhile, the conservatives who went to CPAC... The average people are freaking out because CPAC will not tell. In many places, you cannot get tested for exposure to the coronavirus unless you can tell them who you were in contact with who had the disease. And uh, they're discovering that, you know, the CPAC organizers, they told Ted Cruz, Doug Collins, Paul Gosar, Matt Gates, uh, they told them that they were exposed to an infected person, who it was, when it was, where it was. But now they're saying, we're not going to tell the rabble. So you've got these, you know, these CPAC regular attendees who are saying, well, one of them, uh, Jack Prosobiec, complained, quote, there's one tier of people with information and another tier without. And so these CPAC conservatives are going on social media to complain that the name of the infected guy hasn't been released. These are the same people who wanted the uh, whistleblower's name to be released. This is a great piece over on Daily Coes about this by Hunter, who just writes some of the coolest stuff. 
He says, yes, it has dawned on the common rabble of CPAC that the important people are getting much better treatment from the conservative power class than they are. You idiots. Hunter writes to them, you are conservatives. Insisting that non-powerful people be treated worse than powerful people is the whole point of your movement. I mean, this is the conservative movement that says that there shouldn't be unemployment insurance because if you're out of, out of work, hey, tough luck. I got mine. That's their slogan. This is the conservative movement that wants food stamps cut because after all, poor people or people out of work, you know, if they're hungry enough, maybe they'll go find a job. This is the movement that says that health care is not a right. Hunter writes, clean water is not a right. Decent air is not a right. If lower classes die of things that other classes, upper classes can spend their way out of, well, that's, that's the inherent majesty, Hunter writes, of the capitalist system. I mean, he's, this is brilliant. He says, of course you're not going to get the same health notifications as your own movement's VIPs, you dimwits. You spent the last 50 years steamed that unimportant rabble would dare ask for such a thing. Yes, this is certainly a moment. Meanwhile, Donald Trump had his little press conference where he had a bunch of insurance industry executives and they all said, oh yes, we will voluntarily do nice things for people who need to get tested for coronavirus. You know, if you believe that, I've got a bridge to sell you or, you know, a Fox News segment to sell you. I'd like to see legislation. I'd like to see an executive order. I'd like to see something that has the force of law. By the way, the uh, nobody's mentioning this, but yesterday when Trump announced that the executives of the health insurance companies are going to waive copays and deductibles on coronavirus treatment. What he didn't point out is that what allows him to ask or order that of them is a provision in the Affordable Care Act that the Trump administration and 20 Republican states, state governors, are right now arguing before the Supreme Court or will be in about a month, arguing before the Supreme Court, should be blown up and taken down. Now, Mnuchin and Trump and, you know, Mnuchin, the guy who should have been put in prison in California for throwing 10,000 people out of their homes with illegal robo-signings, he's now our Treasury Secretary. I mean, this is an administration full of grifters. And they're going to be meeting with the Republicans, with Mitch McConnell and some of the senior Republicans, to come up with Republican ways to stimulate the economy. Gee, what will that involve? Oh, so you think tax cuts? What a surprise. In fact, Trump, this from the Center for e Economic and Policy Research, President Trump is proposing a temporary cut in the Social Security payroll tax as part of an economic stimulus package to offset the impact of the coronavirus. Now, let me be very clear about this. If you want to stimulate the economy, in other words, if you want to cause people to buy more things or have less debt, but really buy more things is what does the stimulus, then giving more money in the paychecks of people in the bottom 70% of America, it's probably more like the bottom 60%, but whatever it may be, the, you know, the bottom half of America, where if you cut the Social Security payroll tax, they see an immediate extra $10, dollars $30 you know, a month in their paychecks. And that money, in a typical economy, that money means that they will, they will then have money to you know, go out to a restaurant or to buy the newest gadget or to you know, accumulate several months' worth of that and you know, buy a new computer or TV or something like that, and it stimulates the economy. And in fact, Barack Obama did this in 2009 to get us out of the Great Recession, the, you know, the George Bush Republican Great Recession. And it worked. It helped. But Obama did it with a piece of legislation that said, because the way the Social Security system is set up right now, 100% of the payments that Social Security makes have to come from, 100% of that money has to come from the Social Security taxes, from your FICA taxes, from, your, from the taxes that you pay out of your paycheck. It all has to come from there. Now, if you suspend the Social Security tax collections, you're going to be taking billions of dollars, tens of billions, or depending on the period of time, hundreds of billions of dollars out of the Social Security Trust Fund. So what Obama did was he had legislation passed that said whatever it costs Social Security to have this pause in the Social Security tax 
so that the average working person and low income people in particular will have more money in their paycheck to stimulate the economy. Whatever it costs, we're going to take that out of the general fund, out of general tax revenue, and hand it to the Social Security Administration. So if it costs us $273 billion, we're going to take $273 billion in regular tax money and drop it into the Social Security Trust Fund. So it will not hurt Social Security. You think Trump is going to do that? Hell no. The Republicans are going to go, oh, yeah, we're going to do the same thing Obama did. It helps stimulate the economy. We're going to cut Social Security taxes. And then they're not going to compensate Social Security for it so that next year or the year after that, they can go, whoa, that Social Security trust fund sure is shrinking fast. Maybe we should turn this over to the banks and privatize it. Number one. And number two, keep in mind, when Obama did this and lower income working people had an extra 30, 40, 50 bucks in their paycheck every week or every month, every couple of weeks. They took that money and they went to the local restaurant or went down to the local store and bought something. But right now, those people are not going to the local restaurant or the local store because they're afraid of getting the coronavirus because Trump has not got test kits out all over the country, even though he's lying through his teeth and telling us anyone who wants to get tested can get tested. Not the case. And so it's not going to stimulate the economy. It won't work. I mean, it will hurt Social Security. And it'll reduce the debt of many low-income people. But it ain't going to help Social Security. I did want to talk about oil prices. Saudi Arabia and Russia got into a pissing war over the weekend. Forgive the phrase. I don't know how else to describe this. For the last three years, these two countries have been working together since 2016 to hold down production to maintain high oil prices, basically. And by high, I'm talking about, you know, in the neighborhood of 50 bucks a barrel. Russia needs oil to be above $40 a barrel in order for the ruble and the Russian economy not to be hit badly. And here in the United States, if the price of oil goes below $40 a barrel, more or less, it varies from state to state, company to company, but basically if it goes below $40 a barrel, we start seeing widespread bankruptcies. One of the largest issuers, I believe maybe the largest issuer of what are called BBB rated bonds, sometimes referred to as high grade junk bonds, largest issuer, American fracking companies. They call them shale oil companies now, but they're basically frackers. The whole fracking industry is running on debt. And yeah, interest rates going down, I suppose, is a good thing, but it still costs them in the neighborhood of $35 to $40 a barrel to produce oil. It's a very expensive way to produce oil. So Russia said, we'd like to wait a few months and see how this coronavirus, you know, because oil demand is down worldwide because airlines are canceling flights and people are not driving places and, and industrial production is down. So oil demand is down. So the oil price has been going down. And Russia said, let's just play this out a little longer. Mohammed bin Salman, this is from a piece in the Financial Times, but under Mohammed bin Salman, crown prince, the kingdom has gained a reputation for risky and unpredictable moves. So what did he do? He said to Russia, well, screw you guys. And the horse you rode in on. Because what he said is, we're going to open the spigots. We're not only going to not support the price of oil. We're going to drive it down. And so Saudi Arabia has actually increased production. And Moscow is saying, okay, two can play at that game. We will increase production. And so oil futures were, I believe they were $32 a barrel this morning. Now, what this means is that six months, a year, two years, three years down the road, and maybe not even that long, maybe two or three months down the road, you're going to start seeing a wave of layoffs. It's where it's going to start in the American shale oil industry, in the American fracking industry, because, hey, you know, why produce something and lose money on every barrel you produce? And then you're going to see these companies declaring bankruptcy and going out of business. And then you're going to see all these junk bonds being defaulted. And then you're going to see crisis in the commercial bond market. And then you're going to see, and by the way, you know, the Russians are very, in my opinion, are very happy to hurt the U.S. shale industry. It's one of their major competitors. Plus, they're still upset that, you know, we have inserted ourselves into this Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline to Germany. We're trying to stop this, which would hurt the Russian fossil fuel business. And we still have sanctions on Rosneft, their state-backed oil company. So basically now the Russians and the Saudis 
were trying to hold the prices up so that they could both do well. Now they're letting prices collapse. It's going to hurt Russia over the short term. Saudi Arabia, who knows? I mean, you, you got Bin Salman now has arrested three members, senior members of the royal family, which is causing a lot of people to speculate that his father, or maybe his uncle, whoever it is, who's the king right now, is about to be overthrown or about to step down and hand the reins over to Bin Salman, and he's moving competition out of the way. So that may have something to do with this, too. Which brings us to that old metaphor, you know, when the elephants dance, the mice get trampled. And in this case, you know, the price of oil. So Trump is saying, oh, the price of oil coming down is great. It means the price of gasoline is going to go down. Well, no, it means the profitability of the oil refineries in the United States is going to go up. You think they're going to lower, you know, if the oil goes from $50 a barrel down to $30 a barrel? What is that, a 40% drop in price? Do you think that you're going to see gasoline prices go down 40%? No, you'll see them go down 10%. So the refiners in the United States are going, to make, are going to become more profitable. But that's going to be about it. So anyway, that's you know, my rant. And back to you. Deb in Saginaw, Michigan. Hey, Deb, what's up? Hi, Tom. I wanted to talk. Oh, Deb, if I may interrupt you just for a moment. I didn't conclude my rant about the oil prices. Okay, what go I'm ahead. pointing out is that about half of this stock market drop that you saw was caused by the coronavirus, maybe. More than half of it certainly was caused by this oil thing. And this may be short term. It may only last a few weeks or a month before the Russians and the Saudis decide to resolve this or Trump gets involved on behalf of U.S. oil producers. But it may not. And if it continues for a while and oil prices are around $30 a barrel for more than a few months, we're going to see a major crash here in the United States, in my humble opinion. It's going to get real ugly. So anyhow, end of rant. Deb, to you. You want to talk about coronavirus? Uh, yes, I do. Because... I'm not hearing another way that this could be possibly being transmitted. And we're, I'm hearing all about, you know, stay home, cancel events, don't be in crowded places. It's all about physical contact, but, by and large, yeah. Right. Exactly. But nobody's talking about what all of us have in our pockets, and that's money. Right. Change and money. I mean, we've got coin-operated laundromats, we've got party stores, we've got, you know, parking meters. Yeah. And the other thing is, it's like, maybe that's why the kids 12 and younger are getting it, because they don't handle money. No, I don't think so. And I, and I think that odds are the money in your pocket, unless it was put there by somebody who was infected in the last hour or two. You know, for a while there, they thought that this virus could last on surfaces for days. The latest stuff that I've been reading suggests that that's probably hours, and it depends on the surface, and it depends on the temperature, and it depends on whether it's exposed to wind or to sunlight. I think that with regard to money, the danger would be if somebody had coronavirus and had just coughed into their hand and then reached into their pocket and took a quarter and put it in your hand, you would be oh. definitely exposed. But if somebody, who, you know, if that quarter goes into a cash register at McDonald's right. and it sits there for a few hours and somebody who is not infected takes it out of the cash register and gives it to you as change, I doubt you have to worry. And with regard to paper money, I think the probability of worrying is a whole lot less. I mean, let's not get ahead of ourselves here and totally freak out. Right. Well, okay. I wasn't thinking about paper money, more the coins. Yeah. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Well, I, there, there, it's like, you know, be careful who you're interacting with, I think is the thing. Carry around one of these, one of these uh, infrared thermometers where you can measure somebody's temperature from three feet away. Deb, thanks for the call. It's nice to hear from you. And I think that we should be talking about this coronavirus thing in a larger frame, particularly since Trump is not helping the situation at all. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Yeah, back after Chernobyl, I got a Geiger counter and used to walk around German grocery markets looking for radiation. I actually found a bunch of it. That's the bad news. Tom Hartman University Book Club reading today from Screw, The Undeclared War Against the Middle Class and What We Can Do About It. This is from uh, one of the last chapters, Chapter 13. It's titled Setting the Rules of the Game in the subchapter Gaming the System. If government can create conditions that cause a middle class to emerge by implementing fair rules for business, progressive taxation, free public education, the opposite is also true. 
Government can create a corporatocracy by deregulating business, by cutting taxes on extreme wealth, and by privatizing as much of the commons as possible. Conservatives call this starving the beast. Here's how you starve the beast. You put through tax cuts for the rich, which cuts back the revenues of the federal government to the point that if you got rid of all the social programs, you'd have a balanced budget. No more Social Security, no more spending for education, no more spending for Medicare and Medicaid. Let the government simply keep the armies, prisons, and police. Let's shrink government. That's their philosophy. When you cut all those social programs, you lose the middle class and in its place create a very small, wealthy elite and a large underclass of starvation wage workers. You lose democracy and instead create corporatocracy. You change the rules of the game. We the people lose and the feudal lords win. Cons have been winning this particular game of Starve the Beast since Reagan first started seriously playing it in 1981. They've done it in large part by lying to the American people. And they've had to do that because if they told the truth, the majority of Americans would throw them out of office. This is, after all, still a democracy. If the majority of us agree to get rid of Social Security so that only the wealthy can have retirement benefits and the old are left to fend for themselves, so be it. If a guy breaks his neck and can't work and the majority of us decide not to help people who are disabled and as a result he has to beg on the street, well, we can democratically decide to screw him and ourselves. But the conservatives are not having this debate in an open and honest fashion. They're not asking we the people if we want to get rid of, for example, the Head Start program. They could ask, do we want to invest in our youth or not? We know that if we invest in educating the very young, fewer of them will become criminals. It will save us money over the long term. But the majority of us say, no, we would rather pay $50,000 to imprison them later than pay $300 to put them in a Head Start. Now, if we said that, then that's fine. It's a democracy. But that's not the way the cons are doing it. Instead of explaining why it would be better for Americans to give all their money to the corporate elite, they're giving huge tax cuts to the rich while pretending that the tax cuts benefit all Americans. Instead of arguing that Americans should not expect the right to health care or security in their old age, they are promoting a government crisis by handing to the rich the money we're borrowing from China, Japan, and Korea in the name of our grandkids. They're borrowing so much money from these countries that if they so much as blink, our currency could crash. And that's just what the most ideological of the conservative elite want. They want an economic crisis because they figure that's the only way they can force a cut in spending on social programs. In 2004, they thought that they had starved the beast enough, and they sent Bush out on the campaign trail to advocate getting rid of Social Security, privatizing it, putting it in the hands of Wall Street. But it didn't work. Turns out we the people apparently like Social Security. So the cons went back to starving the beast. Bush instead passed a new series of tax cuts with more to follow. The cons are trying to play the game so that the rich benefit while the rest of us lose out. They get tax cuts, we get program cuts. That's not a free market. That's a market that's being created for the benefit of the rich at the expense of the middle class. The question Americans have faced since the first arguments between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton in the 1780s was whether the game of business should be played with the primary goal of enriching the few or, while allowing the few to enrich themselves, enhancing the quality of the life of the many. The cons suggest that if the rich win first, benefits will trickle down to the rest of us. Protecting workers, they say, will produce abnormalities and dislocations from a so-called free market. For example, they suggest that when minimum wages are fixed by government and labor can lawfully bargain to increase wages by increasing scarcity of labor through union actions, the result is an increase in prices, ultimately hurting the working person. But the economists they often cite in this thinking, David Ricardo, disagreed that raising wages first increased prices. He noted, quote, On the contrary, a rise of wages from the circumstance of the laborer being more liberally rewarded or from a difficulty of procuring the necessities on which wages are expended, does not, except in some instances, produce the effect of raising price, but has a great effect in lowering profits, end of quote. In other words, all that talk about keeping wages down to keep prices down is a smokescreen. Business owners want to keep wages down to keep profits up. And when wages go down, profits do indeed go up. American wages have been falling steadily since Reagan first reintroduced conservative economics in 1980. And American corporations are generally more profitable than they've been in decades. In part, this is not only because wages are going down within the United States, 
but also because U.S. level wages are being replaced by India and China level wages through offshoring and outsourcing. But offshoring isn't a problem for American workers, the cons shout. It's the increase in productivity. American businesses need fewer workers because of automation. This is a tragic lie, and it's been bought hook, line, and sinker by most American politicians and even some economists. The book is screwed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Steve in St. Louis, Missouri. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? Uh, Mr. Hart, I'd like to know, how is the virus affecting the Navy and other branches of the military? We don't know yet. There seems to be a lockdown on information. Yesterday, a, a woman who has called the program before, whose son used to be a Marine, he got out, he couldn't find a job that had health insurance, and so he re-enlisted with the National Guard instead of the Marine Corps, and he's stationed in Afghanistan. And she said that many of the people in his company in Afghanistan, Afghanistan now has five confirmed cases of coronavirus. She said many of the people in his company are exhibiting the symptoms of this. They've got the high fever and the cough, and they're very, very sick. But the military will not provide them, will not test them for coronavirus, presumably because they don't have the test kits. But, you know, who knows? I mean, Afghanistan is able to test, but our military can't. And so uh, I put her in touch with uh, Congressman Ro Khanna, and I got a note from him yesterday, and I, and I sent her information to Mark Pocan as well. And I got a note from uh, Ro Khanna yesterday saying that his chief of staff was on the phone with her as he was sending me the email. So I don't know how that's going to uh, you know, work out, but uh, we've got at least two members of the United States House of Representatives who are looking into this, and and maybe with, I mean, you know, assuming that that Maryland's uh, story checks out, you know, maybe with uh, something that comes close to a whistleblower. But it's very concerning, Steve. 
I mean, you know, the folks are in relatively confined spaces. I believe there's one there's one uh, base, one military base. I, f- I forget which branch of service it is. That yesterday I read a story that they they were either contemplating closing or closing because they thought they had a suspected case of coronavirus there. So. All right. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, so let's just not expect that we're going to get a lot of good information out of the Trump administration. That's the bottom line. You know, Donald Trump said, hey, I don't want this cruise ship. It'll make my numbers look bad. Ada in Stores, Connecticut. Hey, Ada, what's up? Hi, thank you, Tom, for taking my call. I just wanted to point out that Turkey isn't reporting any numbers. And I feel like this is really an example of how a corrupt uh, government is manipulating information and facts. So my brother is, uh, he's a Turkish, he's, uh, sorry, my brother-in-law, he's Turkish, mm-hmm. and he basically, he's, he heard from, you know, in his country that some people believe a professor's report that the Turkish people have a certain um, enzyme that makes them immune to this virus. And this is obviously government propaganda that's being wow. put out there. And I just feel like this is a crazy example of, you know, what a government can do to really just disallow people to have facts. And yeah. I'm really just concerned here because in my community, I live very close to the Yukon campus, and you know, they're still kind of just wondering if they should close schools or not. And my child's day- daycare is inside the college campus. So, I mean, as of now, I'm still letting my child go to school, but I feel like we don't have any scope, really. Yeah. I mean, like you said, we're just uh, kind of floating by. And then we also got a letter from a neighbor who posted it on Nextdoor, and she said uh, she got a letter from an Italian friend, and they said a week ago didn't even think that Italy could shut down, and now they are. Right. It's just, it's I, just, I just looked at the uh, John Hopkins website, and uh, Turkey is reporting one case. Okay, um, so, yesterday I saw nothing. Yeah, and I understand the Philippines has not been testing for people, and Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil was yeah. saying, we're not going to test for people. This is how dictators do it. But Ada, you're, thank you for the story, and, and I wish you the very best. Thank you. Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. We also had an election last night, which I haven't gotten to yet. Bernie looks like he took two states, and Biden took four. My sense of what's going on right now is that people are frightened. They're frightened of the coronavirus. They're frightened of Trump being incompetent. And Joe Biden was vice president for eight years. You know that no matter what, he's not going to wreck the government. Not to say that anybody thinks Bernie will, but Biden's already been in the White House. And so people are, people. you know, during a time of crisis, people flee to safety or the perception of safety. Now, that may all change after Biden and Bernie debate on Sunday and America has an opportunity to evaluate them side by side. But we'll see. Anyhow, I told you I was going to tell you about Harold Hamm. Harold Hamm is a fracking billionaire. He made a ton of money drilling up Oklahoma for natural gas and literally, literally created earthquakes. Oklahoma had never had earthquakes before. They were having swarms of earthquakes. It was from fracking. It was Harold Hamm's fracking uh, in part. So Harold Hamm yesterday called the White House. He said uh, he hasn't spoken directly to the president, but he's talked to his people. Because Ham lost $2 billion yesterday in the value of his company's stock because of Monday's oil price news, because of this oil price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. So he says uh, the White House should be protecting America's interests at this time from being fairly disadvantaged by whatever government. And we're talking governments here, whether it be Russia or Saudi Arabia. Now, what does that mean? The White House should be protecting, protecting American interests. Well, let's turn to the Washington Post. Jeff Stein in today's Washington Post, the headline, White House likely to pursue federal aid for shale companies hit by oil shock, coronavirus downturn. Yes, we have a virus epidemic, and instead of the president wanting to spend billions of dollars to get testing kits into every local drugstore so you can find out, you know, if your kid is sick, whether it's coronavirus or not, or if you are, instead of doing that, 
Well, I'll just read you the first paragraph of the article in today's Washington Post. The White House is strongly considering pushing federal assistance for oil and natural gas producers hit by plummeting oil prices amid the coronavirus outbreak as industry officials close to the administration clamor for help. White House officials are alarmed at the prospect that numerous shale companies, many of them deep in debt, could be driven out of business. Oh my God, these guys had a business model of selling junk bonds, which are held by banks and pension funds and insurance companies all over the country. You think there's not a crisis coming? These are BBB rated bonds, these shale oil company bonds. And that is just one step above official junk. So they're technically not junk bonds, but you know, and they pay a higher interest rate. They pay six, five, six, seven, eight percent. Why? Because they, they're a risk. So uh, this is their business model. Borrow a bunch of money in the bond market and use that money to frack up the country, sell the gas, make a pile of money, and then if everything goes bad, either get a government bailout or declare bankruptcy like the coal companies are doing in West Virginia right now. They're walking away, they're declaring bankruptcy, so they're screwing their employees and stealing their pension funds and leaving the communities with just devastating pollution. Same thing here. So uh, Trump and advisors have been taking calls back to the Washington Post. Trump and his advisors have been taking calls since Monday from concerned energy sector allies who have voiced concern not only about oil prices, but also this is this is the this is the punchline. The oil executives who are calling Trump are expressing exasperation, not only a quote from the Washington Post, not only about oil prices, but also privately warning against the administration supporting any sweeping paid sick leave policy. Do you get how sick and twisted these people are? We'll be right back. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Oh, and did I mention that at a news conference yesterday, Trump said we want to help out the hospitality, cruise, and travel industries, and the shale industry will probably be included in that bailout. Coming up on the science revolution this week, first, Trump is using the same logic on COVID-19 that he used for pesticides and pollution. And I'll explain why that's not a good thing. Nile Marian, Forestry and Biodiversity Framework Coordinator with Friends of the Earth International, is here. Can we stop mass extinctions? Eva Hamer, Legal Coordinator of Direct Action Everywhere, drops by on her article, Why I Went Topless at Costco. Plus, geeky science. This is what happens when public transit is free. But wait, there's more. Tune in to The Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are found. And welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. And on the line with us is Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, the author of numerous books, his latest, Understanding Socialism, democracyatwork.info, and rdwolf with two fs.com are his websites. And you can tweet him at profwolf with two fs. Uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. So since the last time we talked, I think the market's lost like 6,000 points or something. It's been really substantial. We have talked about, on numerous occasions, the enormous debt overhang that our economy has. Now there was this oil price shock as Russia and Saudi Arabia are, are in a price war with each other, essentially, which could be putting the oil industry in the United States in deep trouble. What broadly, and then of course you got the coronavirus, and you know planes and restaurants are emptying out. What broadly do you see happening, and how deep do you think this could go? Okay. You and I are in a specific place that's a little bit unusual in the sense that our conversations over quite a few months now have stressed, and I hope I didn't overstress it, that the exclamations by Trump and others that our economy is the greatest it's ever been, the greatest in the world, are, to be polite, exaggerations. To be honest, they are self-serving political hype. To be more honest, they're lies. And it's not just that we're more indebted than ever before. It's that a give you a recent statistic from a study at the University of Pennsylvania that people born in the 1960s, 60 percent of them live better than their parents, whereas people born in the 1980s, 
40% of them live better than their parents, which means that 60% of the people born in the 1980s cannot achieve the standard of living of their parents. You're seeing a ratcheting down of the American economy for which this country was not prepared ideologically, personally, psychologically, or any other way. That means an economy that is very frail, an economy sitting on a debt bubble with miserable people who have no savings, who haven't put enough away for their old age, who therefore risk becoming burdens on their children. I could go on. It doesn't take much for an economy that badly organized, that fragile, to be knocked for a loop. The coronavirus can do it. The oil price shock can do it. Half a dozen other things that we could imagine could do it. We happen to have the last two, the, the virus and the oil. Either one of them alone could have done it. The two together is a real one-two punch. But the underlying rule, the underlying thing that people have to understand is that these events are exposing the underlying fragility of an economy that spent the 20th century celebrating that it could create a middle class and now entering the 21st century literally tearing that class to shreds. It's amazing we haven't had more trouble in our streets, but that's what I see coming. Do you think that we're on the edge of another Great Recession or even Great Depression? Well, in the past, I've hesitated to say so because, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I know that this economy, having crashed so many times in the past, is due for another one. But only a fool would predict exactly where and exactly when. Nobody knows that. But the short answer to your question, which I notice is all over the financial press today, is that, yes, we would now have to estimate a better than 50-50 chance that we're going to have a recession when you throw together the virus, the oil shock, the literal collapse of airline traffic. The university where I teach just canceled the classes basically for the rest of the semester. This is happening everywhere. This is not an economy that has any slack in it, has any room to accommodate these kinds of shocks. So, yes, I think we're in for a recession and that the stock market will go down further and that the ramifications of that, like the ramifications of the virus and the ramifications of the oil, are we're just at the earliest stage. Think of it like dropping a stone in a pond. The ripples begin, but it's going to take some time. And by the time it gets to the other shore, the ripple will become a wave. Now, neither of us are old enough to have lived through the, the last Republican Great Depression, but certainly as an economist and somebody who studied the history of these things, you're well informed on this. What, you know, outside of stock market advice, which I'm not looking for, how should people, be they young people, middle-aged people, or people approaching retirement or even in retirement, how should they prepare for this? I wish I had an answer for you. I take no pleasure in being able to say I told you so, so I won't say I told you so, other than obviously what I've just done. I don't know what the preparation is. If you have shares of stock, you should be very, very careful about what you do. You should understand that by far the safest course is to limit further damage. That's the major thing to avoid. Even at the price of missing an upwave, if one happens, that's possible too. If the Trump administration were to get out of its fantasy world and actually try to do something, that would give a jolt upward to the market. But my guess is limit your exposure, do not borrow money, hold on as best you can to what you have, limit your risks, because... Right now, this looks like a really bad storm, and you better be very, very careful not to stick your head up where it could get blown away by the force of the economic winds. You're listening to Tom Hartman.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What we really need is for people to get the courage in this moment to be able to say with a clear, strong voice, we can do better than this. We should have had the tests, the test kits, the masks, all of the paraphernalia in a well-developed national network of clinics that could handle this situation. We should not have 100 million people whose insurance policies have a deductible, and this being the early part of the year, people know that they have to pay the price, even if they're insured. And I'm not even talking about the 30 million Americans who are not insured. Those are people who don't go to the doctor because they can't afford it. What about the hundreds of people, the hundreds of thousands, the millions, who don't get paid sick leave? Other countries, South Korea has been remarkable in how it has handled this. It immediately covered everybody with insurance. It immediately said, go to the doctor, we'll pick up the ad. They went out of their way to say that immigrants who are not legally in South Korea will be guaranteed no prosecution or persecution if they go to a clinic where they will be given a free test. We haven't begun as a nation to do what other nations have done, and that's because we have a health system which is governed by what's profitable for a company. It isn't profitable for a company to produce test kits and masks and all the other things and stick them in a warehouse for some eventuality two or four or six years around. But for a society, it is life itself that is worth it. And that's this system that prioritizes profit over the lives of the people in it is a system that has lost its right to expect our loyalty. And if people learn that lesson, then we have a chance not to be destroyed by this one or by the next crisis that comes down the road. Yeah, the, the last two serious crises that this country has lived through in the last 100 years, the Great Depression of the late 1920s, early 1930s, and the multiple assassinations of John Kennedy and Martin Luther King in the 1960s, both led to major progressive reforms. The New Deal in the 30s and the Great Society in the 60s, and the New Deal, the creation of Social Security and unemployment insurance and all these other things in the 60s, the creation of Medicare and Medicaid, and the, of course the Civil Rights Act and, and the Voting Rights Act and things like that. I'm hopeful that this crisis will have a similar effect. Are you? I'm hopeful. I wish I could be more, what's the word Optimistic. I want, sure of it. But I certainly hope that that's why I made the comment I just did. See the importance of this. See the history. See the failure of an economic system that ought to prepare people and protect people and keep us safe, instead being distracted into the mindless profiteering and producing these absurdly concentrated wealth in a handful of individuals. The obscenity of it, you know, is tolerable until the crisis hits. So my hope is that we'll be shocked into recognition that because four people in a room somewhere in the world uh, who are Russian and who are Saudi Arabian can sit down and make a decision that immediately plunges the whole center of the United States into a crisis of collapsing oil prices. And let me just underscore so that people see the way our economy works. The fracking industry, which is where that oil is coming from now, never spent the money to build the expensive infrastructure to get that oil out of the ground. They borrowed that money. They went to the banks of the United States and said, this is a no-lose situation. We're going to produce oil. We're going to be able to charge all this money, so you should lend us. They did. And when the fracking industry dissolves, which it will if these low oil prices continue, it's not just them that will go down. They're going to take the banks down with them. 
those banks are going to turn to the government for a bailout, and we're going to have quite a political fight in this country if the mass of the people have to shell out their own dwindling economic resources to bail out for the second time in a decade the industries that brought us to our knees because of their profit-driven behavior. This has to be a lesson learned because I literally fear, if you add the ecological craziness, that we are on a death trip otherwise, holding on to a system that doesn't save us. Amen. Professor Richard Wolff, uh, thank you so much for dropping by today and, uh, and for everything that you're doing and for sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks so much for that. Oh, glad to do it, Tom, and thank you. Great talking with you. Democracyatwork.info and rdwolf with two fs.com are his websites, and you can tweet him at profwolf uh, with two fs. Professor Richard Wolf. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit tomhartman.com for audio and video archive. For the Tom Harvin University Book Club today, we're reading from a book written by my old friend, Dennis Weaver. He has passed away. I wrote the foreword of this book, just FYI. It's called All the World's a Stage, and it's Dennis's autobiography. Dennis Weaver, Chester and Gunsmoke, you know, all that kind of stuff. He's talking about early in the Depression. This is from page uh, 17, just kind of telling his early life. Early in the Depression, it became clear that he's talking about the 1930s, when he was a young boy. Early in the Depression, it became clear that people had to come together and support each other, or many would just not survive. Not being cooperative and neighborly was not an option. If our neighbors were in trouble, we would not think twice about helping them. We just did it. I remember a family named Hardy bought the 10 acres next to our farm. There was nothing on that land except woods. The men in the surrounding area got together on weekends to cut down the trees and made logs to build a house, a real log raising. Within six or seven weekends, they built a log home for the Hardy family to live in and a shed for their cows. Children had lots of fun. We played games and jumped from stump to stump like leaping frogs while the men sawed logs and hammered nails. Ladies brought covered dishes of food like potato salad, baked beans, and jello, and we had a picnic at lunchtime. It was a community thing, a gathering of friends, and to this day, I still carry the feeling with me. In those times and moments, despite the Depression, we thought we had the best of life, and in a way, we really did. Life was simpler. We knew how good it felt to be neighborly, to share our lives with each other. The national economy was shredded due to the crash of 1929, but in our area, including parts of Missouri, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Texas, the problem was exacerbated by what was known as the Great Dust Bowl. Continuing droughts had dried up the earth, and the fierce winds picked up the defenseless soil and made huge clouds of thick, swirling dust. Visibility often shrunk to a few yards. Most skilled and determined farmers were humbled before its wrath. The nutritious topsoil was all blown away and agriculture came to a screeching halt. At the time, I didn't understand it, but it's crystal clear to me now that our economy and our environment are interdependent. When the environment at that time was destroyed and the farmers could no longer farm, they weren't the only ones who suffered. The economic disaster for the farmers spread like a raging virus to carpenters, plumbers, shop owners, and even bankers. Okies by the thousand piled whatever possessions they could salvage into cars, trucks, any jalopy that would run, and headed for California, which Dust Bowl victims considered to be the land of milk and honey. Perhaps the only one who profited from the Dust Bowl was John Steinbeck when he wrote The Grapes of Wrath. Because of the Dust Bowl, our farm was not financially successful. It certainly helped to feed the family, but the extra income my folks had hoped it would generate did not materialize. Mom, always trying to find a way out, heard from neighbors who had fled the Dust Bowl in our devastated economy earlier that the strawberry picking was good in Oregon. There was money to be made just for the picking. So we gave up on the farm and moved back to my birthplace in Joplin, 619 Brownell, to get ready for the trek west. Furthest west I'd ever been was Blackwell, Oklahoma. Would I see a real-life cowboy? I wondered. What would Oregon be like? I might even see the Pacific Ocean. Our budget for the trip was minimal at best. Like the pioneers across the Great Plains a hundred years earlier, we were obliged to carry our own supplies because motels and restaurants were out of the question. Unlike those earlier settlers, the horses that carried us were not hitched to a wagon, but were under the hood of a 1928 DeSoto. Our plan was simple. Mom, Howard, and Mary Ann, two years old by this time, Jerry, Denzel Bell, 
and I would go to Oregon and pick strawberries and do what other jobs we could get. We would save our earnings and come back to Joplin in time for Howard and me to go back to school. Dad would stay behind, keep his job at the Empire District, and serve as a safety net for us. In case we broke down or got stranded, he could bail us out. Denzel was a carpenter by trade. He put his skills to good use. He built a cupboard on the back of old Betsy, our DeSoto, where we could store an ample supply of canned goods and food staples. By releasing a fastener, the backside of the cupboard opened up and a leg swung down to support it. And lo and behold, we had a table on which to prepare the food and off of which we could eat. We jammed the storeroom with supplies, gave old Betsy a final mechanical check, set our farewells, and headed west for the wild blue yonder. Although she never hinted at it, I'm sure Mom must have had a few qualms and trepidations. For me, it was just the beginning of what I imagined to be a great adventure. We started out for Oregon in the late spring of 1934. In those days, there were no four-lane interstates, just two-lane roads that were often in need of repair and full of detours. Our top speed was 40 miles an hour, so driving to Oregon was no walk in the park. Not long after crossing into Colorado from Kansas, we could see on the horizon what looked like a triangular cloud. It was strange because, like the other clouds, moved, this one didn't budge. We used it as a guiding star for more than two hours before we realized it wasn't a cloud at all. It was the snow-capped top of Pike's Peak. As we drove deeper and deeper into the Rocky Mountains, I was moved more and more by their sheer beauty and breathtaking grandeur. It was awesome. I loved the majestic granite mountains, the tall pines, the quaking aspens, crisp, dry air. It was all very magical to me. I guess I'm back in Colorado today because I was so impressed with it as a child. I was not only impressed by the beauty, but by what it had to offer. This was the first time I'd ever seen a real live working cowboy. and It was the first time I'd ever seen a real deer. We were driving over Wolf Creek Pass at dusk, coming around a bend, and there, right in front of us, was this wild deer running down the road in and out of the shadows. Book All the World's a Stage, Dennis Weaver's autobiography, the foreword by Tom Hartman. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.